Hey there, and welcome back to the show. This is Brett, and uh, we are back with another episode. So um, today's episode is titled, Who Are They? And uh, I think that there's a lot of questions around who are they. We keep hearing uh, they are doing this, and they can't do that, and they should do this. And uh, I've often wondered, who are they? And I'm sure that you have those same questions. So by now, um, regardless of your opinions, views, etc. on anything, I think that everyone at this point in time is going, what's up, right? There's something that is not feeling 100%. You might be uh, getting complacent as um, things kind of shift. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. And... Um, you might be wondering, well, wow, you know, the last two years was kind of crazy and we, we're, we're not going back to normal. Um, things have changed radically and all of these things have been brought to the forefront. Um, but you might be feeling quite comfortable about moving forward here, uh, especially as we see vaccination rates increase. Um, we're starting to see cases go down. We're starting to see some kind of relaxation around um, especially some of the COVID uh, measures, right? So particularly here in Canada, we've been quite strict and, and stringent with these measures. Uh, we're now, you know, there's lots of chatter, um, even globally, particularly in, in Europe and uh, North America, but here in Canada, there's a lot of chit chatter now about, um, oh, you know, we're going to free things up. And if people are vaccinated, they can do these things. We've got passports that are being rolled out. So people are starting to feel a lot more comfortable um, however, what has rapidly come to the forefront is the whole climate change uh, narrative. Okay, and uh, what I want to do in this podcast is I want to tie a lot of things together by answering the question, who are they? And to do this, I'm going to walk you through uh, some things that maybe you haven't thought about before, uh, some things that are maybe quite hard to digest um, but either way, we have to start somewhere and we have to try and dissect um, who are they, all right? In order to do this, um, I thought it would be best to uh, kind of think about a couple things. The first one is I want you to know that every single thing that we do in our lives, every piece of equipment we use, anything we eat, uh, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the brands that we know and love, the technology that we use, every single thing that we use in society is owned by a handful of people. And to illustrate that point, um, you know, we think about things like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, for example, as being these big competitors, right? Apple and Android and um, you know, all, all these, these companies all competing against one another. And what I'm going to walk you through here is the fact that they are all owned by the same people. Okay, and how do we figure that out? How do we know? Um, and how can we prove that? Well, what I'm going to suggest, and you can follow along here, um, I'm, I'm not going to do video uh, for these, but I am going to put a whole bunch of links in the show notes so you can uh, follow along. You can check out all the stuff. Everything that I'm going to share with you on this podcast is 100% verifiable. And of course, towards the end of the podcast, we have to infer some things or we have to at least leave some open-ended questions on the table um, because we don't know 100%. However, I think after the evidence that I'm going to put on the table here, uh, I think after you've 
looked at this and listened to this and actually clicked on some of the links that I'm posting, uh, I think those questions might be a little bit more front and center for you right now. Okay, so the first place I'm going to go to is uh, going to be on uh, Yahoo Finance, right? So Yahoo Finance. Um, I'll put that link down below. And what you can do is you can go on to that and uh, you can actually click any of these um, companies, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just click PepsiCo. You just type that into the search field. And then what you'll see is as you go uh, down, you'll see summary, chart, conversations, etc. And you'll get to holders, right? So holders. Um, and this is where things get interesting because when you look at the holders, um, what you're going to find out, right, is that there are a number of institutions that are holding shares, right? So institutions are holding shares. And um, you will notice that it says institutional investors, right? So institutional investors is really what we're talking about. And the definition here is an organization, for example, a bank or insurance company that invests in something. So the company will move its shares up to the main market this year, hopefully increasing interest from institutional investors. So in other words, we have companies that are investing in these companies, right? And uh, when you look at this, the first thing you're going to notice is the top institutional holders here are for Pepsi is going to be Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street Corporation. Okay, you'll see some other things there as well. Um, but we're going to keep coming back to a few of these names, right? So Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street Corporation. Now, you would think that Coca-Cola is the competitor, right? So if you actually just go to the Coca-Cola company, you can type that in. And if you do the same thing, and you look at who their holders are, uh, lo and behold, what you're going to find is we have Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street Corporation, and we have Berkshire Hathaway. Okay, so Berkshire Hathaway, and that is uh, Warren Buffett's company, I believe. And so we're going to see uh, there's JP Morgan on here, Morgan Stanley. So we're going to see these names crop up over and over and over again. And coincidentally, I went up and looked at State Street Corporation. And if you uh, if you type them into the search field, um, what you're going to notice is that they themselves uh, are actually owned by Vanguard and BlackRock, right, which is pretty interesting. So as we go through this list, right, and you can do this for yourself, you can keep going through this list, what you're going to find is that every single company, right, every single company from the tech companies, so from our social media companies, again, you can type in Alphabet, so Alphabet is the parent company of Google, and if you type in Alphabet, uh, you're going to see the same names pop up. If you type in Twitter, if you type in Google, if you type in Facebook, right? Any of these companies are going to lead you back to Vanguard, to BlackRock, to State Street Corporation, and a handful of others, right? Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan, and these types of um, entities or organizations, okay? If we think about mining materials, right? So materials to make cars, raw materials. Think about Agritech. So, you know, you think about uh, Monsanto, Bayer, Syngenta, DuPont Chemicals. All of these companies are all owned by Vanguard and BlackRock, right? They're the two main ones that you're going to find. 
the oil and gas sector, right? There is no competition between SA, between uh, SO, uh, BP, uh, Petro Canada. It doesn't really matter, right? They're all the same. Uh, now you look at renewables, solar panels, right? Canadian Solar Inc. Let me just uh, type this in while I am. Um, Canadian Solar Inc. is one of the bigger companies. And if you go into their holders, uh, you will see once again that BlackRock is right at the top of the list and Vanguard is down at uh, number five, right? So now all of the renewables are also controlled by these same institutional holders. And if we keep going down to uh, textiles, so these are the clothes that we wear. Uh, you can check up Nike, Levi's, Ralph Lauren, etc. Okay, um, airplanes, I'm just giving you some examples here. Aeroplanes, right? So all the military equipment, pharmaceutical companies. All right, so isn't that interesting? Pharmaceutical companies, if you actually look at Pfizer, for example, and you go to holders, what you're going to find is that Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street Corporation are right at the top. All right, same thing. If you look at Moderna Inc., you can type that in for yourself as well. And lo and behold, the holders here, uh, Vanguard is number three, BlackRock is number four, right? And we can do the same thing for Johnson & Johnson, okay? Now, what I will say as well, with some of these pharmaceutical companies, when you start poking around, uh, you will find, I mean, in the case of Johnson & Johnson, it is Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street Corporation right at the, uh, at the top of the list there. What you're going to find is that there are some uh, parent groups or parent organizations, and I'm going to come to that in just a minute. So to continue here, all of your online stores and markets, so Amazon, Walmart, are all owned by Vanguard and BlackRock. Your payment gateways, PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, all of these companies are also owned by Vanguard and BlackRock. Insurance companies, banks, chains, etc. These are all owned by the same people. All right. So the question must be now, um, if we were to move the conversation along, right? Um, first of all, this obviously highlights some big problem areas, right? And the problem areas are obviously that a very few, uh, there's very few people, right, that control a lot of things right? Very few people that control a lot of things. So when we actually ask the question now, who are they, right? Because this is where things get a little muddy. If I look at all of these different uh, corporations, right? So if I look at the Cokes, the Pepsis, et cetera, et cetera, um, that's all pretty easy. But when you actually type in BlackRock, okay? So if you actually type in BlackRock into the search engine there, and you look at holders, all right? What you're going to notice is that Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street Corporation are the main institutional holders of BlackRock itself. And that's where things get very murky, right? So in other words, we don't really know who BlackRock is, right? And who Vanguard is. Who are these people? We don't really know. And in order to understand who they are, we need to think outside the box a little bit. And we need to go back in time and we need to talk about these uh, wealthy families, right? So um, 
I'm trying to do the very condensed version here. I would encourage you to look up some of the stuff if you're interested. But these are families that have been, you know, elites. They've been borderline royalty. They've been ultra, ultra wealthy. These are not just the 1%. This is the 0.01% of, of the population. And coincidentally, they own 99% of the wealth, right? So that's really where you get that 1%, um, you know, is, is kind of a slogan. So with these elite families, let's call them that, we're looking at um, families like the Rockefellers, uh, the Bushes, the DuPonts, so from DuPont Chemicals, uh, Rothschilds, Morgans, as in J.P. Morgans, um, the, the bank, right? Uh, the Gantz, who are coincidentally making most of the software for vaccine passports right now. They actually have um, long ties back into uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany, right? So that goes back um, a few generations. But uh, these are the families, and there's more. This is just the sort of short end of the list. Uh, the Bilderbergs would be up there as well. These are the founders of our banking systems, of modern medicine, and most of the cornerstone industries that our whole world operates on today. Most people don't realize that with the Rockefellers, um, they, they kind of partnered up with the Carnegies, if you want to call it that, and uh, they are the American Medical Association, right? So the Rockefellers are the, the medical association. They systematically wiped out a lot of the uh, homeopathic colleges and any kind of natural medicine. Uh, they, yeah, they basically just got rid of them all um, around 1900 and on, and uh, they ushered in modern pharmaceuticals. So basically, um, as information became more uh, readily available, um, as you know, people started pushing back against a lot of the stuff, a lot of these families had to kind of disappear, and they had to go into hiding, uh, quote-unquote. So in order for them to continue to function, they have to basically hide behind these shield companies, right, like BlackRock and Vanguard. And this way, they can actually influence public policy and governments um, through nonprofit organizations. Okay, so this is the tie in here. So I know this, that this is a lot to digest, but please stay with me. This is actually super important, and I'm going to throw a bunch of links in the show notes. So, so far, we've basically got these two companies or four companies um, that pretty much own everything. And at the heads of these companies or behind these companies, we've got these ultra wealthy uh, families that have really been in power. Uh, for millennia, right? Maybe not millennia, but uh, you get the picture, right? For centuries, uh, maybe longer than that. And so the question then becomes, how do these people exert their influence on government, on public policy, et cetera, et cetera? And the way that they do this is they set up nonprofits and foundations, Okay, so nonprofits and foundations, uh, they basically work on donations, right? And they are um, dozens and dozens of them, right? Hundreds of nonprofits and foundations. So they work via donations, and because they're nonprofits and foundations, they don't have to pay any taxes on that. Okay, they also don't have to publish um, who they get their donations from. Right, this is very important. So, in other words, you can actually have um, uh, companies that just donate. Right, they actually donate. Um, to these foundations. So the only conditions here is the profits must be reinvested into the projects that they are working on. Now, of course, a lot of these things are um, disguised, if you will, as philanthropic. 
All right, so these are humanitarian efforts. We want to feed the world. We want to make sure that there's clean drinking water. We want to make sure that we're saving the planet, we're saving the people. Everyone is tip top in terms of healthcare. And I think if you know anything about this area and you look back at this, uh, you will see behind the veneer of all of this is that um, really what it boils down to is reinvesting into projects where they can then make more money, all right? So in other words, they either will destroy something and then rebuild it, more on that a little bit later, or they're simply gonna reinvest into things and projects where they're going to get some kind of return on their investment. And if you just think about one that comes to mind here would be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, if you, you know, Bill Gates has said that vaccines would be a 20 to one return on his investment. Okay, so we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. So the bottom line here is that nonprofits can literally move billions of dollars around without anyone noticing, and they are not accountable to anything else. To add insult to injury, we, some of our taxpayer money actually goes to these foundations and nonprofits as well. Okay, now, if you don't believe me, this is uh, not being noticed just by people like myself, but even the Australian government has now said, well, hang on a second, we've done investigations into some of these organizations and they are responsible for money laundering, right? So this is a perfect way to launder money. This is a perfect way to fund terrorism or counterterrorism operations or, um, you know, these proxy wars and stuff like that. We can fund all of these things, okay? And uh, no one's even going to know. So as I said before, there are dozens and dozens of foundations. I'm not going to get into um, all of them, obviously, but I think that the, the three that I'm going to pull out, which I feel are, um, they have the biggest impact and they uh, really, um, the, their tentacles reach very, very far. Let's put it that way. The first one is, as I mentioned, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, they are uh, the World Health Organization's main sponsor, all right? Uh, maybe at time of recording, they might be the second largest sponsor uh, because I believe that the U.S., uh, well, well, when Pre President Trump pulled out of funding the WHO, um, basically Bill and Melinda Gates, they, they became the top donor. Um, but I think that the U.S. might have rejoined under Joe Biden. So nonetheless, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are the main sponsors, right? They're one of the main sponsors there. And um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they are linked to 16 of the top pharmaceutical companies, including all of them, the ones that are making the current vaccinations. Okay, so we'll tie some things together in a minute. We've got the Open Society that is funded by the controversial philanthropist and uh, billionaire George Soros. And then we have the Clinton Foundation, which is Bill and uh, Hillary Clinton. Okay, so these foundations between them really influence uh, a very, very wide spectrum of industry, um, policy, and, and many other things, right? Many other things. Now, um, you might be wondering, like, you know, you're hearing this for the first time, go and check out the links. I'm going to throw a whole bunch in the show notes here. You might be wondering, like, why, why is this not spoken about, right? How come in the middle of this pandemic, and by the way, this, this is the biggest transfer of wealth that we've actually seen up the chain, all right? So I'll talk more about that in a minute. But basically, these, um, these ultra wealthy people have literally made trillions of dollars over the course of the pandemic 
while the bottom 50%, if not more, of the population have seen their lives get destroyed. Okay, they've lost jobs, they, you know, all sorts of stuff, right? Um, business closures, school closures, homeschooling, I mean, it just, the list goes on and on and on. But why is it that um, not only are we not seeing this in the media, right? So we're not seeing this in the mainstream media at all. But when you do talk about it, it's actively censored. Okay, so why is that? Well, let's go back to Yahoo Finance once again. And we need to understand that the media is controlled by media conglomerates. In other words, right? In other words, um, when you look at your local news station, right? Unless they're reporting on something that's local, like, you know, I don't know, local store is opening up or there was a car accident or something like that. That's a little bit different. But when we're talking about reporting on current events, when we're talking about world events and so on, um, your local news station is not getting its information by itself. In other words, it's not an independent news organization. Um, all of the news that we receive, right, wherever we receive it from, and I'll bring social media into this in just a minute, is all filtered or funneled through these big media conglomerates. Okay, so I'll talk about um, the actual news itself, but I think we need to look at some of these media conglomerates. And again, you can go back to Yahoo Finance and you can type some of these in. So if you look up Viacom, so V-I-A-C-O-M, CBS. So Viacom, CBS, one of the largest media companies in the world. I believe they own Amazon Prime. I believe they also own Netflix and a bunch of media outlets. What you're going to see is the same companies, right? You're going to see BlackRock. You're going to see Vanguard. If you look at AT&T, they control or operate or own Warner Brothers, Discovery, TNT, a whole bunch of other companies. Go and look at what they're doing. And who owns them? Same thing. News Corp is uh, basically a subsidiary of the Fox um, conglomerate. And this is uh, Rupert Murdoch. Um, so you would have Sky, you would have Fox, the New York Post, um, anything with Herald on it, um, any telegraphs, right? So the, the Daily Telegraph and stuff like that, all owned by um, Fox and News Corp, right? Huge, huge, huge outfit. And again, um, BlackRock and Vanguard are sitting right there. If we look at the Walt Disney Company, if we look at Comcast, right? So NBC, Universal, DreamWorks, all of these companies. I mean, just just stop for one minute and just think about the sheer gravity of what we're talking about here. We are talking about major multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies that are in essence being owned and controlled by two companies, Right, that is crazy when you actually think about it. So is it any wonder then that we hear this unified message from all corners of the world? All right. And what I did was I have this montage for you. And I know that these are floating around the internet, but I want to share this one with you uh, because it's so striking when you actually look at different news channels and you start piecing together what they're saying. All right. So let's have a listen to this and uh, you tell me what you think uh, by the end of listening to this. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 Uh 
This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. Okay, so, you know, when you hear that, that's basically just taken from dozens of different news clips and um, different different broadcasting agencies, different uh, presenters, different news reporters, everything, right? But it's the same thing. And um, it's this unified message that basically just gets beamed out, right? This unified message. And the message is essentially irrefutable, right? And not only that, well, before we get into censorship and stuff like that, let, let, let me share a couple of other things with you. So the question must become, right, where does news actually come from? Right? So where does news come from? Because it's one thing to look at Netflix and Universal and whatever, and, and you know we can talk about predictive programming and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's more useful for us to actually look at where does the news come from, right? So um, forget about entertainment and movies and all that sort of stuff. Now, as I said before, um, you know, your local news station is not getting, they're not making the news up for themselves. Um, most news does come from some central agencies, and that would include uh, Reuters. All right, so Reuters is a big one. And interestingly, Reuters is a big fact checker as well, right? So they're actually a Canadian company, um, I believe, a very wealthy Canadian family that owns that. And so Reuters' main shareholder is the Royal Bank of Canada. Okay, that's actually who um, owns them. Again, you can go look up Reuters. I think it's Thomson Reuters on uh, Yahoo Finance there. But uh, the Royal Bank of Canada's third largest shareholder, uh, lo and behold, is Vanguard. Okay, so interesting stuff there. They are the third largest shareholder in the bank. Uh, so uh, ANP is another one. So that's A-N for Nancy P, which is uh, out of um, Holland. And uh, we also have AFP, which is French. And then we have the European Journalism Center. And if you actually click on the European Journalism Center, right? So these these four outfits, um, you know, of, of course, there's more if you start getting into Asia and stuff like that. But these four outfits are basically responsible for generating all of the news that we see through, from your local newspaper to your national television station, the, the 8 o'clock news, et cetera, et cetera. And what's interesting is when you look at the European Journal Journalism Center, what you'll see is that they are sponsored, right? So they've got big sponsors. And some of their big sponsors are the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Google, uh, Facebook, the Open Society, and of course, the government, um, different governments, right? Particularly the Dutch government, I believe. So, so let's piece that together for a minute here. So we basically have these non-profit foundations, okay, that are the, the um, well, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Open Society, these are non-profits, right? These are these foundations. And of course, as we just discovered, they're owned by BlackRock and, and Vanguard, right? So they now are the ones that are sponsoring the news, okay? They're, they're governing and dictating the news. We then have Google and we have Facebook that are also governing this. So the heart of our information flow is funded by the nonprofits who are owned and controlled by the same companies run by the same 0.01% of the wealthiest people on the planet. And when you try and publish anything else, right, um, and when you try and speak up, you are going to be censored, 
right? Because look at what happens. Any, you know, you ever noticed how all of a sudden these esteemed, I mean, I'm talking like people that have won Nobel Prizes, uh, people that have just been, you know, veteran scientists, epidemiologists, doctors, I mean, people that are just working on the front lines, like you name it, people that are just so well credentialed. And as soon as they speak up, you ever know how there's this big orchestrated smear campaign? And suddenly they're quacks, they're charlatans, they don't know what they're talking about. And someone will mysteriously publish something that will try to discredit every single thing that they have said. All right. How is that? Right. Because what's going to happen is you go online and you're going to look up, uh, you know, Geert van den Bosch, or you're going to look up Michael Yeadon, or you're going to look up some of these people um, that Robert Malone, you know, co-inventor of mRNA technology. You're going to look these types of people up that are speaking up against COVID. And what you're going to find is you're only going to find negative things about them. Okay. So at the browser level, you are being censored. Okay, why? Well, does Google does Google censor you at the browser level? Absolutely. You can try this for yourself as well, right? Many of you listening to this are into health and wellness. Why don't you go onto your Google browser and type in supplements are. Okay, so just type in supplements are and wait and see what Google does with the rest of it, right? And what you're going to find is, spoiler alert, you're going to find uh, supplements are not good for you. Supplements are a waste of time. Supplements are expensive. You're going to find all negative things about supplements. When you go into Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any of these companies and you try and speak against the official story, what you're going to do is you're going to be met with fact checkers. As I said, one of the biggest fact checkers are Reuters. Well, Reuters, the third largest shareholder in Reuters is Vanguard. Okay, so you tell me, based on what we've discussed so far, do you think that the news and the media that you are reading is is unbiased media? Do you feel that we are getting both sides of the picture? And the reason why I'm bringing all of this stuff up in this foundational podcast here is because this flows into many of the big problems that we are facing today in the world and many of the things that are front and center including climate change, right? I'll talk more about that in a minute. These things are not just happening out of the blue. They are not just appearing and, oh my gosh, we're reacting to them and how did we not see this coming? These things have been laid out. And I don't want to say planned per se, but one has to wonder, have they just been capitalized on? Have they been orchestrated? I don't know, right? I don't know. But the point of the matter here is that we are not getting both sides of the story at all, right? At all. But let's continue with our story. So how do we tie, right? So now we've got these, we've got the vanguards, we've got the Black Rocks, they own all of these, all of the, all of the corporations in the world. And they also use these nonprofits as a front, these foundations as a front. And that way they can move money back and forth, back and forth. And they can, of course, fund any projects that are, quote unquote, humanitarian or philanthropic. Um, And then, of course, they can also make money on that return. But how do we tie the the nonprofits, the corporations and the governments together? Okay, because that, I think, is a big, big one, right? So how do we now, how do we now have governments enacting on policy and that sort of stuff? And this is where we have to bring in the world economic forum. 
Okay, so the World Economic Forum, WEF, uh, this is headed up by uh, Klaus Schwab, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, right? And um, when you, <laughs> the World Economic Forum is a very, very interesting website. I encourage you to uh, spend some time there and just go onto it and, and poke around and uh, particularly go and have a look at their partners section, okay? Um, their partners section, if you go and have a look at it, it is many, dare I say, all of the same corporations the same organizations, the same foundations, the same nonprofits that we've been talking about this whole time. They are all partners for the WEF, all right? They're business partners, they're strategic partners, and so forth. And um, you might have heard of something called the Great Reset. And of course, um, the media will have you believe that the Great Reset is just this big conspiracy theory and oh my gosh, people are out to lunch for even believing it. Well, let me tell you that Klaus Schwab wrote a book uh, called not just the Great Reset, it's actually called COVID-19, The Great Reset. This book was published in June of 2020. Think about the timing. In June of 2020, a, a couple of short months after we declared a pandemic and went into lockdown, Klaus Schwab has a book, right? Published, printed, being sold on Amazon and all over the world called COVID-19, The Great Reset. I will link that in the comments. And so we, what we need to now understand is we need to understand what exactly, what, what is the World Economic Forum? What do they do, right? So let's have a look at that. And uh, again, I'm gonna throw a lot of this stuff in the show notes here. And um, the World Economic Forum, um, if we actually look at this, let me just um, get some notes up here, right? The World Economic Forum actually has uh, part of their website, aside from partners and all of that, they actually have a, a tab which uh, leads you to something called the Great Reset, okay? So the Great Reset um, is a tab on their, um, on their website, all right? I'm just going to bring that up so I can actually read directly from it. So just bear with me while I get that up. Okay. Um, all right. So um, you can actually read what the Great Reset is. And I'm going to start off here with, um, you know, you might have heard of this article before. It's done the rounds on social media. Um, it's, it says, uh, it's 2030, you own nothing and you will be happy. Okay, it's 2030, you own nothing and you will be happy. So what exactly does that mean? And what is it that um, that World Economic Forum are really getting at, right? Um, well, here's the thing, and, and let's just zoom out for a minute. Um, if I read from The Great Reset, uh, this is directly from verbatim from their website, it says there is an urgent need for global stakeholders to cooperate in simultaneously managing the direct consequences of the COVID-19 crisis to improve the state of the world. The World Economic Forum is starting the Great Reset Initiative. Now, on its surface, right, if you didn't know what I just told you, if you didn't know about Vanguard, BlackRock, all of these shield um, entities and, and whatnot, on, on its face, the World Economic Forum might look like nothing, right? They might just look like this philanthropic organization who is talking about the Great Reset and all this stuff, and it just looks like nothing, right? It's, it just, it's a big bag of nothing. However, when you start getting into it a little bit, right, um, 
the context here. So the COVID-19 crisis and the political, economic, and social disruptions it has caused is fundamentally changing the traditional context for decision-making. The inconsistencies, inadequacies, and contradictions of multiple systems from health and financial to energy and education, right? So pay attention to the wording here. Health, that's what we're dealing with, the health crisis. Financial, lots of people talking about economic collapse, uh, digital currencies, all this sort of stuff. Energy, all right? So there's climate, climate change, and education, schooling, and whatnot, right? I'm not going to speak too much about education here. So these inconsistencies, inadequacies, and contraindications are more exposed than ever amidst a global context of concern for lives, livelihoods, and the planet. All right. Leaders find themselves at a historic crossroads managing short-term pressures against medium and long-term uncertainties. All right, so just pay attention to the wording. Short-term pressures, medium and long-term uncertainties. Now, here's where things get interesting because they don't view this as a crisis. They view this as an opportunity, as an opportunity. And when you start listening to world leaders and politicians, especially your, you know, Boris Johnson, I'll play you a clip from Justin Trudeau in a minute. When you start listening to these people, they are all saying the same thing. Right? They're all saying, this has given us an opportunity to rebuild, to reshape the future. Right, And as we enter, this is verbatim now, so this is the opportunity. Right? Quote, as we enter a unique window of opportunity to shape the recovery, this initiative will offer insights to help inform all those determining the future state of global relations the direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of a global commons. Okay, global commons. Hmm. All right, one world. Drawing from the vision and vast experiences of the leaders engaged across the forum's communities, the Great Reset Initiative has a set of dimensions to build a new social contract that honors the dignity of every human being. Now, this on its on its face sounds good right it sounds good but i want to ask you another question here right and that question is whenever throughout history do you know of a time where government and corporations where government and business colluded and collaborated where it was for the benefit of the people because i sure don't right and and this is what we're looking at right now this is not necessarily for the benefit of humankind or of nature for that matter. And here are eight predictions. So this is, uh, again, from World Economic Forum. I'll put the link down below. Eight predictions for the world in 2030. Okay. Now, um, before I get into that, right, I think I should play you another clip here. Because you've heard of the slogan, Build Back Better. Okay, build back better. And if you haven't heard of it, um, just start paying attention, right? It's in the media everywhere, from Joe Biden to Boris Johnson to pretty much Justin Trudeau, every single prime minister out there, every single president, every single politician, they're all chanting and, and the same mantra, right? Build back better, build back better, build back better. And so the question is, what is build back better? What, what does that really mean? And... From my understanding, right, and the way I see this, 
build back better basically uh, means that whether it is intentionally destroyed, so I'm talking about the economy, the earth, whatever it is, regardless of why it's happening, essentially we need a reset because systems that we're running are not sustainable. And what we need to do is we need to eradicate those systems. And then what we need to do is we need to bring in global government contracts and corporations to build this new world. Okay, so that's the short end of the story. We need a reset because systems are not sustainable. And in order to do that, we need to get rid of the old system. We need to bring in a new system. But the way they're going to bring that new system in is to contract these very same corporations, right? Remember, the corporations that are owned by these elites, by Vanguard, by BlackRock, etc. These are the people that are contracted in to come and rebuild everything and make more money. And the kicker is, there's two things that are very important here because you might be wondering, well, that's fine, right? Great, awesome. And I agree with you, we do need some systems. 100%, the, the, the operating system that we're running on right now is not sustainable. I 100% agree with that. But I don't agree with the proposed solutions that they're putting on the table. Okay, And these are things that I'm going to be expanding on in future podcasts, uh, particularly climate change, particularly food. Right, I'll briefly mention uh, some of that here today. But the other thing we need in order to do this is we need a global government. Okay, And you've probably heard of these types of things, right? So global government, um, this could be the UN, so the United Nations, right? And again, this is not me speculating here. This is actually what is being spoken about, is the UN um, basically taking control, right? And second point here is we pay for this. We pay for it, right? Through increased taxes and also the relinquishing of our assets. Now, um, the giving up of our assets, right? Now, this this is going to sound very crazy. I think we can all agree that um, globally, we have become more and more indebted over the last couple of years. And of course, that debt has to be paid back. There's only two ways that you can pay debt back, right? You either start manufacturing goods, and you sell them, you create more jobs, and people have more jobs, so they can make more money. And what are we seeing? We're actually seeing the opposite right? We are having major supply chain issues where, where the manufacture of, of goods is actually becoming more difficult. Uh, getting goods to move around the world is also become, becoming problematic. Uh, we're starting to see now as well that, well, not starting, I mean, it, we're, we've seen it, the decimation of small businesses, right? Job losses, Okay, and so on. So how are we supposed to pay all of this back? Well, the way that we pay this back is we pay it back by relinquishing of our assets, right? And this is where you have, and this, I, again, this, I know this sounds very, very crazy, but this is where you come back to this idea that it's 2030 and you will own nothing and you will be happy, right? So this is this whole idea that you will own nothing. Ownership becomes um, something of the past. And in order for us to understand that and to look at that, um, we basically need to look at um, this page from the World Economic Forum. Before I do that, I just want to drive this point home about Build Back Better, right? Because you might be wondering, oh, you know, it, it sounds, again, it sounds quite conspiratorial and whatnot. But let me play you a clip 
Um, I want to play you two clips. I want to play you one, which is a montage again of uh, Build Back Better from many of the world's leaders and politicians. And then I'm going to pay, play you another clip uh, from uh, Justin Trudeau. So let's cue that up and uh, let's have a listen. It's a very pertinent question to ask, how do we build back better? To build back better or whatever. We have a chance to reset the clock and build back better than before. To build back better than before. Remember the, the terrible damage of COVID as we try to build back from this uh, global pandemic. Joe Biden calls it build back better. Build back better. Building back better. To do things differently. To build back better. We're going to build it back better. And build it back better. To my plan to build back better. Uh, start taking all the problems that have been created in right. education and mental health and start to, to build back in a positive way. I have launched a booklet called Build Back Better, written after coronavirus. It's about building this country back better. <clears throat> Growing conspiracy following it. It is called The Great Reset. An unprecedented opportunity to rethink and reset the ways in which we live. The great opportunity for reset. The theory even calls Mr. Biden's campaign slogan, Build Back Better, a front for the conspiracy. Build back better. Building back better our economy. Build back better. All elements of the great reset are fundamental to building the future we need. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. It's a big effort to, some would say, to build back, back better. We would say to really have a great reset. Okay, so that was the montage there. Um, you heard uh, Klaus Schwab himself at the end. Uh, some would say, you know, uh, build back better. He, he would say the great reset or we need a great reset. Um, let's have a listen to uh, a short speech here, a little clip from Justin Trudeau presenting to the UN and uh, kind of echoes some of the same things. Um, not quite build back better, but um, elaborating on that point. So let's have a listen. The last six months have laid bare fundamental gaps and inequities within our societies and between them. As with climate change, those who have the least are impacted the most. That's why last spring, Canada worked with Prime Minister Andrew Holness and Secretary General Antonio Guterres to convene a high-level meeting to discuss how leaders around the world could work together to close these gaps and build a better, more equitable system that works for everyone. In May, we agreed to look at six urgent areas of action to mobilize financing for the response and the recovery. Over the course of the summer, our six working groups produced over 250 policy options. On September 8th, finance ministers gathered to discuss these options and their recommendations for the short, medium, and long term. The most promising ideas will be taken up within existing IMF and World Bank processes, as well as at the G7 and G20 leaders summits later in the fall. Then in December, we're gonna have the opportunity to meet again to discuss the progress we've made. Because we understand that right now we have to fix urgent problems, but in the long run, we also have to fix the system so that it works for everyone. So um, 
I want you to just pay attention to some of the wording there, right? And if you go back onto some of these links that uh, I shared with you, you'll see that those words are the exact same words that are used on the World Economic Forum uh, website. I would also encourage you, and again, I'll put this link um, down below, I want you to actually go and see how many of these politicians are, are actually on the World Economic Forum website. Right. So for those of you who are in Canada, uh, you might not know that uh, Christia Freeland, our finance minister, um, she's actually on the board of the World Economic Forum. And uh, we have Jagmeet Singh, who's uh, on that website as well. We have Justin Trudeau. We've got Boris Johnson. We've got all of these world leaders. And the question is, how does this all come together? Right. And so, um, you know, every year, this is the what's called the Davos crowd. Uh, so Davos is a place in uh, Switzerland. And basically, um, they meet every year. Right. So these folks are meeting. Um, and what you find is the head. Right. So Larry Fink, who's the head of BlackRock, is invited to all of these things. You will find that your heads of the big social media companies, um, these you know giant corporations, they all go to uh, the World Economic Forum together with the politicians. And, um, you know, when you start looking at things like Great Reset, when you start looking at uh, at Agenda 2030, which I'm going to bring up in just a minute, um, you know, the retooling of society, the redesigning of society is is being done by these uh, by these people. All right. And um, yeah, so let, let's let's jump. Let's jump ahead a little bit here, and I want to come back to these eight predictions, right? So I mentioned that there were eight predictions for the world in 2030. Uh, again, you can see the link here in the show notes. I'll put that down for you. Eight predictions, and I'm not going to um, labor over this, um, but all products will have become services. Interesting. So I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or clothes. Shopping is a distant memory in the city of 2030, whose inhabitants have cracked clean energy and borrow what they need on demand. It sounds utopian until she mentions that her every move, move is tracked, and outside the city live swaths of discontents, the ultimate depiction of a society split in two. Now, this is very interesting when you look at this, because we are literally a society that is splitting in two right now. Right. And you've got people that are not on board with this narrative. You've got people that are not on board with vaccine passports, with mandates, et cetera, et cetera. And they're being ostracized from society. And here you can see that this is the beginning stages of this split, the beginning stages of the split. Point two here. Right. So you can go and expand on all of this on that link. There is a global price on carbon. All right. So. A global price on carbon, what is happening right now with COP26? So COP26 is happening right now at this minute while we're recording. Every single prime minister, every single president, one of the first things that they're talking about is they're putting a carbon cap, right? They're putting a cap on carbon. They're essentially phasing carbon right out. All right, we're all shooting for net zero. And these are things that I'm going to be expanding upon. I'm not going to get into it here because I don't feel like I'm super qualified. Um, I'm hoping to get some experts on that can speak more to greenhouse gases, that can speak more to climate change through the lens of um, the World Economic Forum and this, this Agenda 2030. Okay, So a global price on carbon, um, great. U.S. dominance is over. Right. So this is point number three. We have a handful of global powers. 
So nation states will have staged a comeback. Uh, instead of a single force, a handful of countries, so the US, Russia, China, Germany, India, and Japan are chief among them, uh, show semi-imperial tendencies. Right. However, at the same time, the role of the state is threatened by trends, including the rise of cities and the spread of online identities. Okay, interesting. Recently, the World Economic Forum has actually put on the table that you should be required to log in with your identification in order to use the internet. Okay, just think about that for a minute. Just for you to use the internet, you would have to have identification. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I'm pretty sure if you scr scratch the surface a little bit, that is all going to be tied to your vaccination status, etc., etc. All right, four, farewell hospital. Hello, homespital. So technology will have further disrupted disease. The hospital as we know it will be on its way out with fewer accidents thanks to self-driving cars and great strides in preventative and personalized medicine. If you want to dive into that topic, I would encourage you to listen to uh, my podcast with Alison McDowell. Um, we spoke a lot about personalized medicine. Um, it's not what you think it is, right? And again, you know, I think it's probably useful for me to just stop here for one minute. I'm not saying that all of these things in and of themselves are bad, right? I think it's very important here. Um, there are many of these things that I think could be useful. I think, in fact, technology could be a great savior for humanity. The, the problem that I have is that when you see who's steering the ship here and when you see this, the centralization of power, the, the transfer of wealth up the chain and, and essentially the middle class disappearing and many of them slipping into poverty, when we start looking at it through that lens, we have to wonder, are we using this technology for the best, right? For everyone's true best interests? Or are we just paying lip service to those best interests and we're actually using it so that these ultra wealthy people can further their wealth, all right? So I think that's important. So um, personalized medicine, uh, again, social impact investing. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Uh, basically, um, you know, they're, they're talking right here on the website, scalpels and organ donors are out. Tiny robotic tubes and printed organs are in, right? So we could essentially be looking at 3D printing. We could be looking at nanotechnology. So that's another topic of discussion that we'll probably get into at some point in another uh, episode. Um, point five here, we are eating much less meat. Right, so much less meat. This is something I'm going to be spending quite a good uh, chunk of time in, especially being, um, you know, one of the things I do, being a nutritionist. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Eat Lancet uh, study. I know I brought that up a few years ago when it first came out, but basically this whole idea that they have um, now the Lancet Journal, right? So the medical journal, the Lancet. Um, they have basically. Um, they over two years they did the study where they got I think it was like a few dozen experts together and they came up with a diet for human and planetary health and so human and planetary health basically what diet is best for human beings what diet is best for the planet and lo and behold when we talk about eating less meat right there is in fact a war on meat and it's not what you think it is okay I, yes, I get factory farming, all of that. The way that we're conventionally raising animals is, is abhorrent, right? We should stop that altogether. But like getting away from animals entirely is not very good for the carbon picture, right? It's not very good for climate change. In fact, we need to be changing the way that we farm animals. 
right? So regenerative, small-scale farming, um, you know, carbon sequestration, all that sort of stuff can be done with animals. In fact, it's a very good way to do it. But what we're looking at here is we're actually looking at when they're saying we're eating less meat, what they're actually talking about is we are going to be pushing lab-grown meat. We're going to be pushing synthetic meat. We're going to be pushing these things, right? We're going to be pushing vegan foods that have been genetically modified by the same companies that are owned by Vanguard and BlackRock, that have been sprayed with the chemicals that are basically made by the same companies, right? By DuPont, by Bayer, by Monsanto's, etc. These are all owned by the same companies, right? So um, when you look at these things, and again, this is a topic I'm going to be diving into more, on the surface, you know, uh, eat less meat, good. Save the planet, good. But you're not, they're not telling you what the replacement food is going to be, right? So, um, you know, bugs, insects, right? Um, engineered foods, synthetic foods, and that sort of stuff is really what they're talking about, okay? And why are they talking about that? Because it can all be controlled by these companies and they can all profit from it. Right? There's no profit if you're encouraging people to do small-scale regenerative agriculture, to have chickens in their backyard and stuff like that. There, there's, there's no money in that for them, right? So this is all about centralization of power in the economy. Uh, point six here, I don't have too, many, too much to comment here. Today's Syrian refugees, uh, 2030's CEOs. Um, this does have a lot to do with the retooling of society and skills. And uh, again, I, I don't feel qualified or have the know-how to comment on that. Uh, the values that built the West will have been test breaking points. So this is number seven, all right? Uh, we've, uh, yeah, so again, I'm, I don't have much to add on to that. Look at this though. Eight, by 2030s, we'll be ready to move humans towards the red planet, right? Quite crazy. So actually moving people onto Mars. So basically, what is the point of me sharing all of this information with you? Um, and here's, here's why I'm sharing this, right? Because I feel that this is foundational stuff that we all need to know. If we're asking who are they and we're looking for unbiased information, right? That's what we want to know. We, all we're looking for is the truth. We, we're trying to understand and make sense of the world around us and what we're being fed is we're being fed a curated, pre-approved, uh, one-sided picture here that is actually not an accurate representation of where we're headed. And I also feel like the many of the intentions here, and maybe not the intentions, but the actual execution and the plans that are in place are very disingenuous. And, uh, you know, when we start talking about trusting the science, right, when we start talking about trusting the doctors, trust virologists, trust climate change scientists, and trust all of these things, trust the plan, and it's all under the guise of these very, very noble causes, right, uh, human health, feed the planet, uh, save the planet, you know, and, and I get it. And I think that this is what makes it so difficult because I feel like we're being led down the wrong path here, all right, by these particular people that we've spoken about on this podcast. And so um, I'm going to be expanding on a lot of the stuff, but I guess the other reason why I'm sharing this with you is if you didn't know about this stuff before, I hope that this helps you to start make some sense of uh, why censorship exists, why 
maybe friends, family, other people that you meet have a completely different outlook on things, um, possibly because they've never even looked at what we've spoken about today. And they've never thought that uh, maybe all is not as it seems. So as we move forward, you know, I really feel that we are in a pivotal moment in history whereby we have the power to move forward in a different way here. And so, as I've said in this podcast, I agree that our systems that we're running are not sustainable. The way that we're growing food, the way that we're living is not sustainable. But let's use technology to to do this in a way that serves humanity versus just lines the coffers of these corporate interests and elites, right? Because this is where we're at right now. This is where we're at 100%. And I'm actually quite optimistic about everything because this is our moment. This is our moment where we understand these things. We can look at the things that we're talking about here. And instead of coming from a place of fear and anger and anxiety and being paralyzed by it all, we can empower ourselves. We can share this type of information with other people. And then we can actually start looking at viable, real solutions that can lift up humanity and move us forward in a more sustainable way. So I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I know it's a lot of information to digest. Uh, please do check out the links in the show notes. Uh, you can simply click on, uh, go onto the website and, and check it out. And, you know, I, I just, I, I always feel a little bit strange when I present stuff like this because I never know how it's going to land. And truth be told, there's a lot of people out there who simply don't want to know this, right? It's too much to digest. It's too much to take in. Um, but I feel like as a, as a, a global society, I feel that now is the time that we really need to know this stuff. We, we need to understand that for decades, this has been going on, if not millennia, this has been going on. And this is our moment to take back our power and to, to create the world that we really want to see, where we can have true equity, sustainability, Right? And all of these slogans and talking points that we're hearing from places like the World Economic Forum. right? Yes, I agree with that. The solutions that we need, though, we need to look at solutions that serve us as the people. So thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you next episode.